listening to Mr. Radio, and I'm your host, Marshall. Today's guest has been a guitarist with the rhythm and blues group Genesis 3, the Jimmy James Jazz Orchestra, and has performed as a freelance member of various New York Society orchestras. In addition to teaching music, he currently has students from ages 7 to 70. He has also been the guitarist for vocalist Carmen John, as well as a classical guitarist for the From Bach to Broadway ensembles. A solo guitarist throughout the New York metropolitan area, he has also performed as the guitarist with vocalist Grady Stone and as a member of the local 16248 Jazz Big Band. He is the owner and founder of Mill Sound Music and is currently the president of the American Federation of Musicians, local 16248. The American Federation of Musicians is comprised of 80,000 members in the United States and Canada. Its members perform in orchestras, backup bands, festivals, clubs, and theaters, both on Broadway and on tour. The American Federation of Musicians members also make music for films, TV, commercials, and sound recordings, and it is the largest union of musicians in the world. It is my honor to introduce today's guest, Tony Scali. Welcome to the show, Tony. Thanks, Marshall. It's great to be here. We opened our show highlighting your solo from the track Something About Jane, which you recorded in 2019 with the Silk City Jazz Ensemble. I'd like to get back to this track later, but first I want to talk about a recent article in the New York Times which reported that, quote, the Metropolitan Opera House has been dark for a year and its musicians have gone unpaid for almost as long. The players in one of the finest orchestras in the world suddenly found themselves relying on unemployment benefits, scrambling for virtual teaching gigs, selling the tools of their trade, and looking for cheaper housing. About 40% left the New York area, more than a tenth retired. Is this something your membership is also suffering through right now? Uh, yes, our membership is suffering, not to the extent that the uh, opera is, is suffering our local represents the New Jersey Symphony Orchestra, which is based in Newark and plays out of NJ Pack and also plays out of Bergen Pack and plays in Princeton, plays in Morristown. They play all over the state. They'll be celebrating their 100th anniversary soon. That orchestra has taken a 40% reduction in pay during the pandemic. It's certainly not easy for the players. But it's not as uh, draconian as what happened to the opera, which is absolutely disgraceful because the opera is much better funded than the New Jersey Symphony Orchestra. And the New Jersey Symphony, you know, stood up and supported its players somewhat in a way that the opera did not. It's, it's actually disgraceful what's going on over there. Do you blame this on the, the New York Union? No, not at all. I blame this on uh, Peter Gelb, the head of the, of the Metropolitan Opera, who has also locked out all of the stagehands. It's just a completely anti-union sentiment that they're building there. The union that represents them, the local, is 802 in New York. Eventually, the opera is going to have to come back to work, and uh, hopefully some kind of reparations will be paid to the players. Fortunately, from what I hear, y your union members are not selling their instruments or uh, in, in such dire straits? We have about 700 members. There are 70 who play in the New Jersey Symphony Orchestra. We also represent players who, who perform at the Paper Mill Playhouse and at the uh, Ocean City Pops down in South Jersey. Our local extends from 
North Jersey all the way f- down to Cape May. Those players in in the theater and in the Ocean City Pops have not received any compensation in the last uh, 15 months. So it's it's a it's a very dire situation for everybody. And of course, the rest of our players are all freelancers. You know, they're holding on for dear life. Columbia University has a, a rich history of strikes, and including one strike that happened while you were attending Columbia. Did your Columbia education influence you into becoming so active in the, in the union? Not particularly. I mean, I've been a member of, the, of, the, uh, of Local 248 since 1978, and there was a lot of work in the 1980s, a lot of unions. Uh, sanctioned work, so it was really it paid off for me to be a member, and then I continued my membership as the union work started to dwindle in the 1990s and in in the new millennium, and I was asked to join the board oh, about seven or eight years ago, and the local was in very very difficult um, situation at that point. We went through a couple of different presidents, and then I I drew the short straw and ended up being president of the local. With the help of my fellow officers and uh, my executive board, we we instituted really, really strict measures. We stopped the bleeding. The local had been losing about sixty grand a year, and in three years we managed to turn it around into a into a small profit. We were no longer uh, bleeding money. We continued to merge with other locals. Throughout New Jersey, we we took over New Brunswick. We merged with New Brunswick, rather, and then later we would merge with Atlantic City. So that increased our membership and increased our bottom line too. It helped us out. What would you say your crowning achievement has been leading this union? Oh, to bring it back to fiscal responsibility, to bring it back to a balanced budget. Although that's going to go right out the window this year. <laughs> because we don't have any income. <laughs> we, we exist on our members' dues and on work dues. When, when union-sanctioned jobs are, take place in our state, we receive 2.5% of uh, each musician's pay. So uh, without any work dues coming in for the last year, things are, uh, again, looking, looking very dire for us. We have secured a, a small business administration loan to help us get through this year, and we are also applying for a, a PPP loan to help with our payroll uh, to get us through through you know the rest of this pandemic because we don't see work coming back until the fall. Not only are your members doing commercials, uh, working in orchestras, but you say that you have some freelance musicians as well. What does one have to do to become a member of the union? 
they just have to come down and, and join. There's a small initiation fee, and, and then they pay their annual dues. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of uh, freelance musicians who are not union members will say, oh, the union doesn't do anything for me. Why should I join? Why should I spend that money? But our outlook is that you, as a union member, have to bring things to the table that you want to improve, and we'll help facilitate that for you. It's not that we're there to do things for you. It's that we're there to help you make, make your situation better. And as we come out of the pandemic, I'm going to be preaching to all musicians, not union and non-union alike. It's time for them to start to think collectively. Musicians have always been their own worst enemy. In other words, somebody will always take the gig for less bread. Somebody will always say, oh, well, uh, you know, they're paying me what they get at the door, or they're paying me half the door, or I'm doing the gig for, this is the worst one, for exposure. <laughs> it's, it's the only industry where people are so desperate to be heard that they'll undermine their own best interests to perform. Wow. And I'm going to try to convince people that what they do has worth and that they have to attach a monetary value to that worth. And they have to begin to stand up for themselves collectively. And whether that's through the uh, union or not, there are other groups being formed in, in New York City. Now there's a group called the Musicians Workers Alliance, which is uh, not part of the union, but uh, the union has it, it, its blessing. You know, we're going to try to do the same thing here in New Jersey with independent gig workers and try to get people to, hey, don't take the gig for less money. Don't, don't work for the door. And absolutely never take a gig for exposure. <laughs> That's well. the worst thing in the world. I'd like to get back to gigs and, and music. I, I just read a review by Philip H. Farber, and he reviewed Grady Stone's album, After All These Years, on which you play the guitar. Mm -hmm. And he writes, quote, Retro jazz has become increasingly popular in the last few years, but it's a tough genre. What is retro jazz, and why would he call it a tough genre? To call it retro jazz is uh, something I, I wouldn't necessarily agree with. Jazz music touches everything from Dixieland and, and ragtime all the way up to uh, the uh, avant-garde and, and fusion. There are many genres that, that fall into the, into the jazz category. But jazz music itself, born in this country and, and developed in this country, is not popular in this country. It comprises a minuscule part of music sales, as they are nowadays, which are, that's a whole other topic. Uh, <laughs> musicians don't make the money they used to do, even at the top of the food chain. Why do you think that jazz is no longer popular? 
I think it might be a bit esoteric. It was very popular through the big band era in the 1940s and 50s. And then as it went to smaller groups and the musicians um, began to play more sophisticated and uh, more, more sophisticated music harmonically and uh, started to stretch, stretch musical boundaries, they lost the ability to connect with the larger audiences. Back to uh, After All These Years, the album that you played on, mm-hmm. uh, how did you meet Grady Stone? I met Grady in a club through a mutual friend. And uh, 11 months after I met her, we were married. And how, and many, how many albums have you done with her? Two. I mentioned after all these years, what, what's the other one? The other one is Grady Stone Live. Before you met Grady Stone, you played in a band, was it Genesis 3? Yeah, that was an R&B band. That was way back in the late 70s. Was that the first first band that you ever played with? Uh, the first band I ever played with that went on the road, but certainly not the first band I ever played with. I played in many, many bands through in high school and college, and this was after college. How did you become interested in becoming a musician? Uh, I've been playing since I was eight years old, <clears throat> and it was always something that I just really loved. My sister, one of my older sisters was my first guitar teacher, and we spent a lot of time playing together through our preteen and teen years. It was just something I, it just fit me, and the instrument just spoke to me. And I still, I just, before we got on the phone today, I just finished an hour and a half of practice. That's how I start every day. If I don't get that time in, I'm grouchy. <laughs> Did you start out as a, a young player playing uh, rhythm and blues, or what? what when no, when did we you evolve playing, into jazz? Uh, we were playing folk music. We were playing Peter, Paul, and Mary, and the Kingston Trio, and all that stuff. And my sisters would sing the harmonies, and then we moved into Bob Dylan and the Beatles and uh, stuff like that. And then I had a teacher when I was about, I don't know, eighth or ninth grade, who introduced me to Wes Montgomery, great, the great jazz guitar player, Wes Montgomery, and that changed my life. <laughs> when I heard that, I said, yeah, that's the sound I want. Speaking of teachers, uh, you are also a teacher. As a matter of fact, before I knew you were going to be on this show, I got a lot of feedback from your former students. They're really excited to hear you. Can you tell a little bit about your teaching? Yes, I've been teaching for, oh, 40 years now, uh, mostly privately. I do have, I have spent some time in schools along the way. I currently, uh, although not during the pandemic, I have been teaching at a school called the Village School in Waldwick, which is a Montessori school and is an absolutely wonderful place. And I teach uh, guitar and ukulele there. I, I teach ukulele to the uh, younger kids and then transition them to guitar when they're in third or fourth grade. But my private teaching 
is something that's evolved over the years. It's something I really love doing. I still love doing it. I think I'm much better at it now than I was even 10 years ago because a good teacher is always learning from their students. And I, I was very lucky to uh, teach in the, in the Ridgewood area. I began teaching at Victor's House of Music when it used to be on Franklin Street. And after a few years there, they discontinued their program. And they, I said, well, what, what am I going to do with all my students? They said, oh, they're all yours to teach. So that got me into private teaching in Ridgewood, and I've had, I've had a nice long run there. It's, a, it's a, been a, a very nice community to teach in. How have you dealt with social distancing for teaching? Well, I've done all my teaching online since March 14th of 2020. As a matter of fact, this Monday evening, I will be giving my first in-person lesson in over a year. I will be teaching an adult who I am now fully vaccinated. I am two weeks out from my, from my second shot, as is my student. He's an adult student, so I'm, I can't wait to drive to his house Monday evening and give him a lesson in person. <laughs> and I hope that a few of my other adult students, when they are fully vaccinated, I'll be able to, to visit them at their homes. And then I hope the kids next September, I hope I can get back to doing in-person in teaching both. I go to people's homes, and, and I hope the school uh, is able to have the uh, music faculty back next year as well. You uh, write in your bio that you have students from ages 7 to 70. Mm -hmm. uh, are the 70-year-old students new, or are they already experienced players? Um, they're, they're somewhat experienced. Somewhat experienced. Actually, my oldest student now is 77. And he could play, and he's a jazz player who wanted to, you know, improve his playing. It's fun. It's, it's fun. And my youngest student now is six. And I've been teaching him for three years already. <laughs> Do you have any memorable teaching experiences that you might want to share? Oh, I have millions of them. I wouldn't even know where to begin with that. Funny things that the kids have said to me and, uh, you know, relationships that we've had. I recently reconnected with a student who I taught from Mawa, who I taught through middle school and high school, and then lost track of him. And I found, you know, I followed his activities because I, I saw him one night playing in a rock band on a Tonight Show. And I said, oh, that's great. He's doing great. And then about a year or two ago, I saw him in the 802 newsletter playing a Broadway show. So I reached out to him uh, on the email, and uh, we reconnected. We even got together and did some, did some playing uh, last year before the pan pandemic. And it's been great to reconnect with him. He is a, a highly successful uh, studio player and uh, touring musician. And a couple, a couple of my students have gone on to, uh, to great heights in the, in the music business. It's nice that they're still in contact with you. It must make you feel good. Oh, yeah, it makes me feel great. Sometimes I run into, uh, run into somebody who I haven't seen in 20 years, and uh, they, uh, 
they're still playing, you know, they're not doing it professionally, but they, they still have their guitar, and it, it, uh, it makes me feel great. As a matter of fact, another story, uh, one of my Ridgewood students became a famous actor. The New York Times did an article on where he was living, his apartment, and they showed a picture of it. And as I'm looking at the article, I look at the apartment, and there in the corner I see a guitar. <laughs> so I wrote, I wrote an email to his mom, and I said it was so great to see the guitar in the corner. And she wrote back, oh, he still plays all the time. <laughs> and that basically is what I want for my students. I want them to keep music in their life. They don't necessarily have to go down the ridiculously difficult road of trying to do it for a living. But if they keep it in their life, it gives them a, a spiritual connection to the cosmos that you can't get anyplace else. Spiritual connection and cosmos feeds into my next question. Before we started this interview, you mentioned solidarity, and you posed the question, what does solidarity mean for musicians? Mm-hmm. What, what does solidarity mean for musicians? Solidarity is standing together and, and uh, standing up for one another and you know, being part of something larger than just yourself. I close all of my union emails. It's always in solidarity with, with my brothers and sisters in the unions. And we are very involved, not only in the Musicians Union, but in the AFL-CIO. We have members who serve on labor councils all over the state, and we are constantly trying to, uh, to help not only ourselves, but to help all workers stand, stand up for themselves. And it's, it's great that we now have a president who is extremely union-friendly. When you're not working with your union and you're not teaching, you also run Mill Sound Music. What is Mill Sound Music? Well, Mill Sound Music is a company that I run my teaching through, and we, I have a couple of other teachers that I represent and give students to. And I used to use it to book gigs. You know, I used to play a lot of wedding ceremonies and things like that. But in the last oh, five or ten years, I've done much less of that work. I'm at the age now where I only want to play things that I really like. And I don't need to go out and and do a gig uh, just for the money anymore. When I go out and play now, I'm, I'm playing things that I love. Do you have your own recording studio? How, how do you go about recording? I, well, everybody has their own recording studio now. <laughs> um, as I sit in front of my computer, there's a mixing board next to it. There's a number of audio interfaces, a couple pairs of speakers. There's one, two, three, four amplifiers, a keyboard. And uh, recording now is all right into your computer, right into a hard drive. I started off by playing something about Jane, which was our opening track, and you recorded this in 2019 with the Silk City Jazz Ensemble. Can, mm-hmm. can you tell us more about that track? Yeah, that was written by uh, the pianist Bob McHugh, 
very fine player. As a matter of fact, I should get a pitch in. I will be playing with the Silk City Jazz Quartet, which is Bob on piano, Russ DeBono on drums, um, Jesus Salinas on bass, and myself on guitar. We'll be doing a streaming concert on April 24th at 3 p.m., sponsored by the Musicians Performance Trust Fund, which is a fund that is sponsored by the union. Every time there's a, a musical sale, a small percentage of it goes into the MPTF to fund live music. And during the pandemic, they've been funding uh, streaming events. So we'll be doing a, a one-time stream on uh, April 24th at 3 p.m. It's a very good group. Is there a website people can go to to uh, get information? I will be on Facebook, on the MPF, MPTF page on Facebook. MPTF page on Facebook. Yep. Very good. I am so happy, Tony, that uh, you were able to speak with me, and I'd like to come full circle and close with Satin Doll. Can you introduce it for us? This is just a little solo that I did, oh, I don't even know, maybe 10 years ago. And of course, it's a famous tune by Duke Ellington. It's uh, something that many people are familiar with. It's just a, a great, fun song to play. All right. So we're going to leave with Satin Doll. And again, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. And I, I hope that I can hear from you again real soon. I hope so, Marshall. It was a pleasure. And the half hour went very quickly. It certainly did. All, All right. right. Bye-bye. Be well. Mr. Radio is available wherever you get your podcasts, including iTunes and Spotify. Subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. And don't forget to tune in next week for another episode of Mr. Radio. Mr. Radio.